Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, prize-winning author Patrick DeWitt talks about his latest novel, French Exit. Patrick DeWitt is the author of The Sisters Brothers, which won the Governor General's Award and the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize and was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and the Walter Scott Prize. He's also the author of Ablutions, which was a New York Times editor's choice, and Under Major Domo Minor. And Patrick's latest novel, which we're going to be talking about today, is French Exit. Patrick, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks very much. How would you describe French Exit? Well, it's a story of a dysfunctional family who have lived in great wealth. Uh, in the beginning of the book, we see that their wealth has vanished. They've spent it all. And so now there comes the question of how to live without it. And I understand this book actually started off quite differently. Hmm. Yeah, it, there was an uh, earlier incarnation of the book. Um, after Sisters Brothers, I set out to write a book about a corrupt investment advisor. And this is somebody who flees New York and uh, arrives in Paris to avoid imprisonment. I went to France myself to sort of research and, and check it out. And um, the book fell apart and I put it to the side thinking that I would never return to it again. I wound up writing under Major Domo Minor and then I returned to a, a contemporary setting for French Exit. And I didn't really realize until uh, this book was almost completed that I had taken the abandoned investment advisor book and sort of written a, a story with the secondary characters as opposed to the, you know, that character of the corrupt um, fat cat is... Uh, Literally, literally okay. a fat cat is is uh, <laughs> is prevalent in this book, but he's not quite the focal point. It's much more about the um, wife slash mother and the adult son, uh, Francis and Malcolm Price, as their names. And you said this is a, a contemporary novel, and obviously your previous novels are you know more obviously takes on historical fiction. But I think what's interesting about this novel is it actually it could be set at any time. It's 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 very sort of vague about it is. the setting. It is, it is. And I had the sense that I should probably throw some cell phones in or references to the internet or something like that. But every time I did, I felt that it marred the world that I'd created. So I, I sort of just kept that stuff to the side. No, but I think that works That works so much better because even, you know, just the fact that, you know, they get a an, an ocean liner across to Paris right. rather than, you know, rather than a jet. Right, You right. know, it sort of strikes it. It means that it just feels like it could be set at any particular time in the in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, it, it is, uh, I think, looking back somewhat, uh, harkening back to something like an Evil and Wah uh, setting or, or any of the uh, Comedy of Errors style uh, writers of the, uh, like, say, 1940s or 50s. Those uh, those artists were in my mind, I think, when I was working on this book. So why Paris? What is it about Paris that you wanted to write about? Well, I, I went to Paris however many years ago, nine or ten years ago, and just came to find that I really enjoyed being there and felt good in a way that was abnormal for me. Um, wanting to write about somewhere other than America, 
there's uh, you know the, the the cliche tradition of uh, authors enjoying themselves in Paris, and, and I fell victim to that, and I'm sort of embarrassed by it to tell you the truth, but I'm stuck with it, so I just went went with the feeling. Frances Price, who's the main character in the novel. Before we talk about her, first of all, in no way temperamentally, but I mean, is there any link whatsoever to Fanny Price from Mansfield Park, or is that just a coincidence? I think that's just a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so who is Frances Price? Frances Price is somebody who in her youth was known um, in the social circles of the Upper East Side of, of Manhattan as a great wit and a, a very stylish sort of chic individual. Uh, her wit is is fairly caustic and, and it only gets more so as the time passes and uh, the glamour of her past has faded. So she's somebody who does a good bit of looking back and um, looking forward I think makes her a little bit uncomfortable. She doesn't really like to consider what's what's coming. And, well, I guess we should talk about her her husband, who at this point in the novel has been dead for a number of years, but who was he? Franklin Price is or was um, a highly successful and completely immoral litigator. This is somebody who defends people like the tobacco industries or, um, you know, the, the gun industries or the, the you know, anyone who's, who's sort of... Um, Profiting off of the unhappiness or death of others, this man Franklin Price is there to defend them. And, and, you, and uniquely, those type of companies. Yeah, say, yeah, he seems to to excel in in this uh, sort of swamp like environment. And so the question I think that those around him ask is: Is this somebody who does this person have a moral agenda or an immoral agenda? I suppose you'd say that's not necessarily answered in this book. But um, anyway, uh, what occurs in the course of of this story is it is revealed that at least Francis believes that her cat houses the spirit of her now-deceased husband. And that's sort of the jumping-off point for a, a healthy amount of strangeness. And as well as being this, you know, this sort of society woman, there's this sort of intense amount of gossip around her about um, the circumstances of her husband's death. Tell us something about that. Yeah, her behaviour in the wake of her husband's death is not um, necessarily admirable, and it's very telling of their relationship. She discovers her husband dead in bed one day of a massive and unexpected coronary, she then goes skiing and doesn't call the authorities and just assumes that one of the maids will, will take care of the corpse. She returns home from uh, her skiing vacation to find that he is still in the same place and time has passed and na nature has done its thing. He um, doesn't look his best and uh, the police are called and there's, you know, her, her heretofore um, sort of stellar and... and um, envy-inducing lifestyle and and notoriety sort of plummets overnight and she becomes this sort of very macabre and dark and horrific figure that people begin to whisper about behind her back. So Malcolm, her son, her adult son, yeah. lives with her and, and he starts off as a sort of ridiculous and pathetic figure and I think as the book goes on, more of his background is revealed and he becomes you know more sympathetic and perhaps more tragic um but tell us something about malcolm who is he right malcolm is her adult son he's in his 30s uh during the the telling of this book up until the age of 12 he had virtually no relationship with his mother and father he had been sort of sent off to tony private schools and 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 they had left his um rearing to other people in the wake of the death of his father francis's husband she arrives unexpected and unannounced at one of these schools and accepts him into her life, uh, removing him from the school. And from that moment on, this is the beginning of their relationship, but from that moment on, they're inseparable. And it's sort of them against the world. And he has this sort of on-off relationship with a, a fiancé, Susan. Yeah. What is it about Malcolm that keeps Susan coming back, do you think? 
That's a good question. I think that the answer is just that she has bad taste in men, probably. Um, and there, he has. I I do think he has, as he himself says, a certain something. But um, I think she just appreciates how different he is than everybody else that she knows. This is somebody who who lives in a in a completely um, self-made world, and um, has no other relationships outside of. Uh, his friendship with his mother and, and, and with Susan. And he's just an, an odd bird, and she's taken in by him in some way. And um, his charms, uh, such as they are, work on her. Uh, their relationship is doomed uh, from the start, however, because Francis would never allow for, you know, her confidant to be whisked away by another woman. There's this internet thing, meme, the large adult son. I don't know if you've come across this, but Malcolm is basically that you know basically to describe this you know this again that thing the adult son yeah. that sort of donald trump jr sort of figure someone who's in their <laughs> late 30s yeah. um obviously from a wealthy background and and as to all intents and purposes like useless yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's just sort of there and they're spoken about by their parents as if they are still a child even though they are like an adult yeah yeah i'm unaware of the meme what is the what is the meme sort of what does it do? I think it's just it... that. I think it started off with um, Mike Huckabee's two elderly sons, okay. and then it just basically gets gets applied to all of those. But also, I was reminded of, and I can't remember his name now. I've just thought of this, but like the um, uh, you know the youngest son in um, Arrested Development. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah, who's yeah. sort of like very much um, you know pathetic and useless, and like a mummy's boy. Yeah. And whether or not Ma- Malcolm is you know correctly described as a mummy's boy, I don't know. But he's they're inseparable. Yeah. And that's her more yeah. than him, I think. Yeah, and she definitely is sort of holding all the cards, and and he is in her employ in a way but there is a certain at times they they to me sort of come off almost as a romantic couple or 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 like you know like a married couple um not that there's ever anything overtly sexual about the relationship but it's almost peer-to-peer at certain points in time in, in the telling of the story you know what it really boils down to is this they prefer one another's company to the company of the rest of the world so there's something sweet in there somewhere but it's pretty deeply buried And there is this sort of weird when, you know, they describe, well, certainly Malcolm, she asked him about his sort of like sexual exploits and stuff. Yeah. A weird sort of uh, creepiness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the the level of sort of frank discourse is, is probably not that healthy, I think, ultimately, you know. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Patrick DeWitt, and we're talking about his latest novel, French Exit. And Patrick, these people that populate this novel, the, the, the prices, why did you want to write about this sort of, like, you know, this part of society, these sort of people? Yeah, I submitted the book to my US editor, and I sort of, with the caveat of, this is probably the worst time in the history of mankind to write a sympathetic portrait of the wealthy. And I, I, in terms of it being a, a, a wise move for my career, it's probably not, and, and um, probably reads as tone deaf to, to certain readers, and I'm sorry about that. But um, it well, just, sympathetic seems an interesting word because they are awful. They're awful, and they're portrayed as awful. And yet, I think if you read it carefully, you can tell that I care for these people, and I, and I like them. I can't help it. It really came down to that that very thing. These were um, these are people who I, I had a very vague idea of who they were in my mind. I sat down to to write about them, and, and Francis and Malcolm wanted a book to be written about them, and that doesn't happen often. So when it happens, you follow that feeling. You're sort of stuck with what works in my in my job, you know. Well, I presume you're going to say not then, but have you encountered this sort of people? Where do they come from? They're complete fabrications. I grew up in a, a you know much more of a sort of working class household know very little about this type of life, uh, lifestyle. Um, this is what I imagine it's like or what I hope that it's like in some way. I'm probably completely wrong, you know, but um, this is the magic of fiction, right? Can we talk about some of the other people? So once so they leave, their, you know, their money runs out and they, they do a French exit. That's where the title comes from. They basically um, let you run away and um, go to Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, literally French exit in both ways. Um, and then this sort of small group of other people gathers around them and they become like a little sort of party, definitely, you know, against Francis's will. Let's talk about some of these other people. So um, Madame Renard particularly is, is is a great character. Who's she? Madame Renard is described in, in the book as a dementedly friendly American expat, and that sums it up pretty nicely. This is somebody who is enamored of Frances Price, who was aware of her when she was sort of at her prime and um, was very much a, a fan of hers in a way. And uh, she discovers that Frances has moved to Paris, and she invites her over to her home, Francis and Malcolm arrive thinking that they're about to attend a dinner party and come to find that it's just the three of them. They're mortified and revolted, and this is the jumping-off point for a deeper friendship. Madame Renard is somebody who became more important in the course of the book than I had anticipated. I thought she'd be somebody just for this one scene, and yet at the end of the scene I wanted to see more of her. And so the way I wrote it is that she sort of shows up at Francis and Malcolm's borrowed apartment and just refuses to leave and just becomes a, a, a sort of a permanent part of that landscape. She's somebody who doesn't necessarily make sense all the time. She's like one sort of senseless, deranged quip after the other. Um, she's there for fun, really, but there's also something, um, I think, somewhat endearing about her. She's obviously desperately lonely and, and looking for some sort of deeper communication. And she's decided that the prices will will serve that uh, that purpose for her, and there's not very much that they can do about it. You know, she's not going anywhere. So tell me more about how that works for you in the writing process then. So when a character that you're expecting, you know, just to, to use once or twice becomes, you know, how does that communicate itself to you? Well, this is what comes from not really plotting or planning anything out. Um, it's sort of an adventure in terms of I don't know what's coming on a given day. More often than not, what happens is that a scene or a character disappoints me. And so then it's a question of cutting. But when people deliver beyond your expectations, then that's just sort of a bonus. It's it's an exciting thing that happens from time to time. And it's a question of listening. You know, it, will this be as interesting to other people as it is to me? Is this person as likable as I think he or she is? 
but yeah, again, uh, uh, when these people uh, do more than, than, than they'd sort of signed up to do, then you just have to listen to them and, and, and um, ride it out to its end. And there's Madeline, who is, um, well, when we first meet her, she certainly seems like a, you know, a sort of fraudulent psychic. They meet yeah. her on the um, crossing of the Atlantic. Yeah. And she, you know, begins a sort of like on-off relationship with them. But then it, things become apparent that perhaps she can, you know, see more than than they think. And um, I want to talk about these sort of inclusions, inclusions of elements of the supernatural in the novel, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the supernatural element seems to exist in all my works. Um, even in my short stories, it's, 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 it's there. And it's something that I keep returning to, I think, just out of a, a, a basic uh, interest and fear of these types of things. I, I think that there are all sorts of elements uh, living all around us, and we don't necessarily see them or ex- experience um, experience them in a sort of conscious way. But it's just something that I'm aware of. And um, with my novels, it's it seems to be that I, I like to get to know these people and then put them in situations where they're forced to behave. It's like an extreme situation where their reaction is telling um, so that you learn more about them, and this pushes the story along. And a séance, I think, is a, is a, is a good ex- example of um, how does a person behave during a séance. So for Madame Renard, it just makes her really chatty and happy. Um, for Malcolm, it's very uh, disturbing and alarming. You know, it's like these are these are tests that I'm 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 sort of setting for the characters of the book, and it's always uh, good fun for me to see how they all react. And you mentioned earlier the idea of the, you know, the, the genre of the comedy of manners, yeah. um, which this falls very firmly into. What other books of that type were an influence on this? I think with this particular book, in, in terms of really like overt influence, I was thinking of Evelyn Waugh. I was thinking of Jane Bowles, um, her novel Two Serious Ladies. And then I was thinking of John Cassavetes in, mm-hmm. in, in a strange way, uh, thinking of the way he populates his party scenes with just, you know, degenerate behaviors and, and uh, like the de-evolution of a night. Um, the beginning of the night, everybody's very, you know, together and, and, and polite, and then they're barking like a dog by the end of the night kind of a thing. So I love the way he handles that that debasement. Um, but, you know, just generally when I think of, of, of uh, what I was aiming for with this book, I am thinking of um, any number of British authors, um, most from like the 1940s or 50s, and just the way they handle dialogue and, um, you know, the exhibition of cruelty um, through dialogue. Dialogue is sort of my great joy in terms of, uh, of writing, and, and so I look to the, to the Brits of the 1950s as being sort of the masters of, of, of this specific type of, you know, extreme, dire, caustic, funny dialogue. And this book in, is in itself described as a um, within the the cover a tragic comedy of manners, yeah. and indeed you know death stalks the pages of the book. Um, as funny as it is, there's always this sort of like undercover of of tragedy and some horrific deaths that are in the past in in the book. And um, um, so tell me about that combining those elements, you know, that idea of like you know the sort of mortality with the actual genre, which is like basically a, a a light genre. Right, yeah. To me, it's just a very basic thing of um, the combining of these two very different uh, or disparate elements is pleasing. So you have a dire tragedy on the one hand, and somebody's describing it with um, sort of bubbly effervescence, and, and um, that to me is just, those two things go really well together. And I think it's um, the best way to share bad news is usually with an as- a comedic aside or, or a joke of some kind or just the setup of this entire novel, I mean, the last half of it, where they're all sort of jamming themselves into this borrowed apartment in Paris, it doesn't really make sense. It's just so silly. Nobody would really live this way. Nobody would accept it. But it's this sort of pressure cooker environment. 
that reveals, I think, so much. And, and there's room for high comedy, um, especially it's pleasing for me when it's butted up against, you know, a real um, heartfelt uh, horror or tragedy of some kind. Um, just one more thing for me, and then I'll get you to read a bit, if you would. Can you tell me something about the um, the film adaptation of The Sisters Brothers? Have you had any involvement? Or if, and if not, what's that been like to have your work adapted? Yeah. I was involved in a way, the director Jacques and his uh, partner Thomas Bittigan wrote the screenplay. Um, they sent me the drafts as they as they completed them, and then I would read them and give them notes and send them back. And right before the film shot, I did a a bit of a polish in the dialogue because it was written in French and then translated. And I think some of the nuances of language were lost in the translation, so uh, they were good enough to let me sort of give it a, a shine. Um, but it's very much their telling of the universe of my book as opposed to, you know, it's not the sort of mirror image of the book by any means, but it's an interpretation of it. And I feel like it's faithful in spirit. And by that, I mean, by the end of the film, I feel like I'm in the same place emotionally that I arrive at when I consider the book or when I read the book or when I was writing the book. So I'm really pleased with the way it's turned out. And um, it's been surreal to see it come to life. And I don't envy filmmakers. It's really, really difficult to get these things together. And it's just a Herculean task. And it makes writing a novel seem, at least in comparison, just so simple. So I'm, I'm uh, pleased that I get to do my work in this. Um, not that it doesn't have its own set of problems, but um, seems far simpler than to, than to recreate a story on the big screen. So the, I'm just going to read from the beginning of the book. This is chapter one, page one. And here we see Frances Price and her son Malcolm leaving a party. All good things must end, said Frances Price. She was a moneyed, striking woman of 65 years, easing her hands into black calfskin gloves on the steps of a brownstone in New York City's Upper East Side. Her son, Malcolm, 32, stood nearby looking his usual broody and unkempt self. It was late autumn, dusk. The windows of the brownstone were lit. A piano sounded on the air. A tasteful party was occurring. Frances was explaining her early departure to a similarly wealthy, though less lovely individual, this the hostess. Her name doesn't matter. She was aggrieved. You're certain you have to go? Is it really so bad as that? According to the veterinarian, it's only a matter of time, Frances said. What a shame. We were having such a lovely evening. Were you really, the hostess asked, hopefully. Such a lovely evening, and I do hate to leave, but it sounds an actual emergency, and what can be done in the face of that? The hostess considered her answer. Nothing, she said finally. A silence arrived. To Francis's horror, the hostess lunged and clung to her. I've always admired you so, she whispered. Malcolm, said Francis. Actually, I'm sort of afraid of you. Is that very silly of me? Malcolm, Malcolm. Malcolm found the hostess pliable. He peeled her away from his mother, then took the woman's hand in his and shook it. She watched her hand going up and down with an expression of puzzlement. She'd had too, too many drinks, and there was nothing in her stomach but a viscous pâté. She returned to her home, and Malcolm led Francis away, down the steps to the sidewalk. They passed the waiting town car and sat on a bench twenty yards back from the brownstone, for there was no emergency, no veterinarian, and the cat, that antique oddity called Small Frank, was not unwell so far as they knew. Frances lit a cigarette with her gold lighter. She liked this lighter best due to its satisfying weight and the distinguished click it made at the moment of ignition. She aimed the glowing cherry at the hostess, now visible in an upstairs window, speaking with one of her guests. Frances shook her head. Born to bore, she said. Malcolm was inspecting a framed photograph he'd stolen from the hostess's bedroom. She's just drunk. Hopefully she won't remember in the morning. Frances said she'll send flowers if she does. 
She took up the photograph, a recent studio portrait of the hostess. Her head was tilted back, her mouth ajar, a frantic happiness in her eyes. Frances ran her finger along the edge of the ornate frame. Is this jade? I think it is, said Malcolm. It's very beautiful, she said, and handed it back to Malcolm. He opened the frame and removed the photo, folding it in crisp quarters and dropping it into a trash can beside their bench. He returned the frame to his coat pocket and resumed his study of the party, pointing out a late middle-aged man with a cummerbund encasing a markedly round stomach. That man's some type of ambassador. Yes, and if those epaulets could talk. Did you speak to his wife? Francis nodded, men's teeth in a child's mouth. I had to look away. She flicked her cigarette into the street. So I've been talking to Patrick DeWitt. We've been talking about his latest novel, French Exit, which is out now in the UK from Bloomsbury. Patrick, thanks so much for coming in and telling me about it. Sure, thank you for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 